Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 178. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Little change to the normal running of today's show. We are going to, in this show, play three short stories. And three of those short stories are up for Best Short Story in the British Science Fiction Association's Best Short Story. Unfortunately, one producer did not want to play ball with Starship Sofa, so that's that's their prerogative. But we have three fantastic short stories, and it'll give you a little taste of you know the kind of quality that's out there in science fiction day and what the British Science Fiction Association is looking for. We have. I'll give you the three stories. We have Nina Allen's "Flying in the Face of God" that came from Interzone two two seven. Then we have Aliette Dibidod's The Shipmaker, which again was from Interzone 231. Then we have Neil Williamson's Arrhythmia, which was from Music for Another World, Mutation Press. So those are the three stories we're going to play. And like I say, I'm not really going to go into who the writers are too much or anything like that because I just want you to really to have a listen to the stories and make your own judgments. The first one I'll play is Nina Allen's Flying in the Face of God. The story first appeared in Interzone 227. Just a big thank you to Interzone for allowing Starship Sova to play this story. It is narrated by 
Nicola Seaton Clark. Nicola has been a good supporter of Starship Sofa and is just a fantastic narrator. Wait till you get to listen to this story. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present Flying in the Face of God by Nina Allen. Flying in the Face of God by Nina Allen. Anita Schleif. Have you thought about what you'll do if you're not past fit to take part in the mission? There have been media reports of how difficult it is for discharged flyers to be accepted back into society, of how women flyers especially have been treated as pariahs. How does it make you feel as a woman, knowing that the Kuznev drain will make you permanently infertile? Rachel Alvin. I, I don't ever think about failure. I, I don't see the point. I want to put all my efforts into succeeding. As for becoming infertile, it's, it's a decision you take, like any other, like, like having children or not having them. Life is all about making choices, and in making one choice, you inevitably close the door on another. Flyers find it hard to fit in because being a flyer is a vocation. Anyone who chooses to follow a vocation finds ordinary life difficult and mystifying, whether they're an artist or a missionary or a mathematician. The Kuznev drain is only a part of it. Mainly, it's, it's a question of focus, of intense focus on only one thing. From the transcript of Shooting the Albatross, The Women of the Aurora Space Program, a film by Anita Schleif. The outward effects of the Kuznev drain were many and varied. With Rachel, it had exaggerated her freckles. They looked darker than before and slightly inflamed standing out on her face like divots of rust. It was hot in the carriage, and Rachel's brackish, slightly acrid body odour was particularly noticeable. Anita watched the man in the opposite seat wipe sweat from his upper lip with the back of his hand, and then hoist his briefcase onto his knees and take out the times. She saw him staring at Rachel over his newspaper, the way civilians always did with flyers, especially the women. Two stops down the line, he left the train, leaving Anita and Rachel with the carriage to themselves. Rachel stood up and tried to open the window, but the ceiling catch with its rusted-down hasps proved too much for her. It was an antiquated design, something Anita remembered from her school days. She was surprised to see it. She'd thought all the old-style compartment trains had been decommissioned years ago. She got to her feet and opened the window, releasing the sticky catch with the heel of her hand. Warm air rushed in, filling the carriage with the smell of dried grass. You mustn't put your muscles under strain, said Anita. Remember what the doctors have said. I just feel so useless. I can hardly do anything now. The things you can do are different, that's all. You know that better than anyone. Stop giving yourself a hard time. Rachel turned to face the window. Her thinning hair blew back a little from her face. Anita wondered if Rachel would be allowed to keep what remained of her hair or whether it would have to be shaved off or whether it would fall out soon anyway. She thought of asking for the sake of the film and then realised she didn't want to know. When compared with other aspects of the process, it was a small matter. But she'd always loved Rachel's red hair. I went to the supermarket with Serge last night, said Rachel suddenly. Just after you left, I, I wanted to help him stock up. It was no good, though. It was all too much. I had to go and sit in the car. It's hard to explain. It's like you're drowning in colour and noise. The sight of all that food makes me feel ill. She paused. 
We tried to make love, but it was hopeless. When he tried to go inside me, it hurt so much I had to tell him to stop. They gave us this special lubricant, but it's useless. At least it was for me. Serge told me it didn't matter, and I made it all right for him, of course, but I could tell how upset he was. He was ages getting to sleep. She turned back towards Anita. Her eyes, once dark blue, were now a faded turquoise, opaque as chalk. Will you go and see him once I've gone? I know he likes talking to you. Anita nodded. Of course I will. She wondered if this was some covert way of Rachel giving her permission to sleep with Serge, to take him over, perhaps. She knew it would be tempting for both of them, but she must not allow it to happen. She loved Serge, but as a brother, to try and alter things could be disastrous. They would do better to behave as they always did, by going to films together and cooking curries and talking about Rachel. In the end, Serge would meet someone else, and that would be painful, but at least their friendship would still be intact. In the last six months, both during Rachel's leave and immediately before, Anita had tried to concentrate all her energies on the film she was making about the women flyers. The idea for the film had arisen directly out of her early conversations with Rachel, and she'd begun the project almost without realizing it. In many ways, she still felt uneasy about it. She didn't like the idea that people might see the work as in some way connected with her own life, as a comment on the death of her mother. She found such notions intrusive and unwelcome. But now she'd started work, it was impossible for her to draw back. She even supposed that at some level people would be right to assume that the film had a personal context, although its subject was not her mother, of course, but Rachel. Rachel was now producing less than ten milliliters of urine a day. Her skin had increased in thickness and had lost most of its elasticity. She was eating next to nothing and sleeping little. The sleep she had would be feverish and noisy with dreams. Anita's researchers had made her an expert on the Kuzhnev process. Rachel had pulled a few strings and she had been allowed in to see Clement Anderson, the team doctor. He refused her request to film him, but he had agreed to a taped interview, and she had been allowed to shoot a few brief sequences around the base. There was some footage of the flyers in the team canteen that she knew would come across very well. <clears throat> the drain triggers a permanent change in the way cells grow, Anderson had told her. Crudely put, it's a form of cancer. He had given her a folder of printed material and a DVD of Valery Kushnev explaining his theories. Kushnev's accent was so strong they had to include subtitles. The Kushnev process derived from cockroaches. Cockroaches, Kushnev explained, were the hardiest of species. They could endure the harshest of conditions and subsist on next to nothing. If necessary, they could shut down most of their functions. Regressing to a state of suspended animation until an improvement in external circumstances allowed them to continue with their lives. During the journey itself, our flyers will exist in a half-life, said Valery Kushnev on the video, a kind of para-existence in which there is full intellectual function but without the accompanying stress of biological need. In this way, we cross the emptiness of space. Our flyers are the new pioneers. In a very real sense, they are following in the footsteps of Columbus. At this point, he chuckled, showing teeth that were eroded and stained with nicotine. Anita had watched the film more than a dozen times. How's Meredith? said Rachel. Did you call her last night? 
Anita started in her seat. For a moment she'd almost forgotten where she was. She's fine, said Anita. She asked after you. It was becoming increasingly difficult to talk to her grandmother on the phone. They had unlimited free calls at Southwater House, but she refused to have the webcam on, and disembodied voices seemed only to confuse her more. How's that friend of yours? she'd said. Are you bringing her down to see me? You mean Rachel, Gran, said Anita. Her name is Rachel. We came down to see you last week. Her grandmother's short-term memory was becoming increasingly erratic. But on some days, Meredith Sheena was as sharp as ever, keen to read the newspapers at breakfast time as she had always done, and even able to complete a small section of the crossword puzzle. She was still a demon at cards. Anita had tried talking to the visiting consultant about this, asking him if the card playing might help to stimulate other areas of her brain, but he brushed her words aside, shaking his head as though she had asked him if her grandmother might perhaps one day take up deep sea diving or decide to learn a second language. Oh, they all have something, he said. With some it's cards or backgammon, with others it's a photographic memory for Shakespeare. It doesn't mean anything. An old person's brain is like a capsized steam freighter. You'll find pockets of air here and there, but the ship is going to sink in the end. Nothing to set much store by, I'm afraid. Anita remembered the look on his face, the tight, harassed expression of a man with too many demands on his time. He was tall, grey and gaunt, his fingers slightly twisted from arthritis. He's a good-looking man, that doctor, don't you think? This was something her grandmother said every time Anita visited. Anita knew she fretted about her not being settled with anyone. She wished she could reassure her in some way, explain how her love for Rachel sustained her as much as it caused her pain. She touched the pendant around her neck, feeling its bumpy contours through the thin green material of her blouse. It was something she did often, at times of stress or uncertainty. The pendant seemed to act as a lodestone, bringing her back in touch with who she was. It hung on a silver chain, a small, finely worked figurine in the form of a dodo. Her grandmother had once taken her to see the dodo skeleton on display at the Natural History Museum. Anita had gazed at it with intense curiosity, almost with reverence. "'Why are there no real dodos?' she asked. She'd been about eight at the time. "'The dodo forgot how to fly,' said her grandmother. "'It lived on the island of Mauritius, right in the middle of the Indian Ocean.' There were no people there, and no other big animals either, so it was perfectly safe. It didn't really need its wings at all. But when hunters finally came to the island, the dodo couldn't get away from them. They were shot and killed in their thousands. In less than a hundred years, they were extinct. Anita thought it was terribly sad. She felt a huge anger towards the hunters, with their ridiculous feathered hats and their carefully oiled fowling pieces. Later, when they got home, her grandmother had shown her Mauritius on the map. It was like a paradise island when sailors first discovered it, she said. So much of the world was still unknown then. Imagine how it must have felt to set foot in a place that no one had ever seen before. As a child, she was allowed to wear the pendant occasionally as a treat. But when Anita turned sixteen, her grandmother gave her the silver dodo and told her it was hers to keep. It belonged to your mother, she said. She wore it until the day before she died. When they got to Charing Cross, they had a minor argument. Anita wanted to go with Rachel all the way out to Northolt, but Rachel insisted on continuing with the journey by herself. 
How are you going to manage? said Anita. What about your luggage? Rachel couldn't carry anything heavy because her bones were still at the brittle stage. There was also the question of safety. There'd been a couple of attacks on flyers in recent months, supposedly by tube gangs, although on all but one occasion the incidents had happened at night. I've only got one suitcase, said Rachel. Nothing's going to happen. She laid her hand on Anita's arm, her fingers brownish, a bunch of dry twigs. I need some time to get adjusted. If you follow me right to the wire, I'll, I'll blub like a girl. Anita tried to laugh. She remembered another conversation they'd had, the argument that had erupted between them on the morning Rachel received her commission. It's too late for this, don't you see that? Rachel had screamed at her. It's been too late from the day I had the first course of injections. Don't you think I could do with some support? Has it ever occurred to you that I might be scared too? In the end, Anita went with her as far as the underground. They went to a cafe just off Leicester Square. From the outside, it looked coolly inviting, but there was something wrong with the air conditioning, and Anita's neck and armpits were soon streaming with sweat. Rachel, of course, hardly registered temperature changes any more. She wet her lips with small sips of mineral water, while Anita drank a glass of orange juice, filling it slip down her throat in freezing gouts. At the end of twenty minutes, Rachel called for the bill and then stood up to go. It's time, she said. The longer we put it off, the worse it will be. She pulled a handkerchief from her pocket and dabbed at her eyes, although Anita was sure this was just out of habit. Rachel's tear ducts had dried up some time ago. Once they were outside on the street, Anita turned and took her in her arms. I love you, she said. I love you so much. I know, said Rachel. I know you do. They went down the escalators to the Piccadilly line. A youth with tattooed black mumbers encircling both forearms helped Rachel onto the train. Going up soon then, are you? he said. I think you're the business. He steered her gently, almost tenderly, towards a seat. The train doors slid closed. Anita raised her hand, meaning to wave, but Rachel's face was angled away from her, talking to the boy with the snake tattoos. As Anita watched, he threw his head back, his green eyes crinkled closed in a soundless laugh. Once Anita was back at Charing Cross, she telephoned Serge. He sounded distant and preoccupied, and for the first time it occurred to Anita that he might have started seeing someone else. Anita had never talked to Rachel directly about Serge. She'd taken his continued presence as proof of his devotion. It was something she admired, something that softened the worst pangs of her jealousy. Now she wondered if she'd simply been blind. I won't be at home for a while, she said to him. I'm going down to visit my grandmother. I'll probably be away for a couple of days. She didn't know why she was telling him this. The decision to go and see her grandmother had come upon her spontaneously, almost while she was having the conversation. She pressed the phone hard to her ear, trying to catch every nuance, any suspicious change in the tone of his voice. I'll see you in a couple of days then, he said. Are you okay, Anita? Are you sure you wouldn't like to come around? I'm fine, she said. Quite suddenly he was the last person she wanted near her. I'll come and see you as soon as I get back. She changed trains at London Bridge and then again at East Croydon. The fields either side of the tracks were yellowed and cracked. There'd been no rain to speak of since April. Drought summers were common now, 
and were said to be becoming more common, though Anita remembered them even from her childhood. The standpipes in the streets, the dry hours between eleven and four. One of her friends from school then, Roland Parker, had once gone six whole months without washing. It's my patriotic duty, he said. His friends egged him on, placing bets on how long he could hold out. He stank like a muskrat, but the skin beneath his clothes had been smooth and clean. His smell had attracted her, feral and vital and somehow other. Anita remembered touching his penis, its immediate and startling response. It had been Roland Parker who had first told her about her mother. Your mum died in that fire, didn't she? He said. That explosion on board the rocket. There's stuff about her on the internet. My brother told me. They'd been sitting out by the old pond, side by side on the concrete platform that people had once used to dive from into the lake. There was no water now, of course, just a foot or two sometimes in winter. In summer, the lake was a dense mass of greenery, of hogweed and bramble and dead nettle mostly, but other things too—poppies and foxgloves, plants that didn't grow much anywhere else. Her grandmother said it was because the soil under the old pond always stayed slightly damp. The concrete was burning hot beneath the soles of her feet. She squinted through her lashes at the three o'clock sun. My mother died in an air crash, she said. It was what she'd always been told. Oh, said Roland Parker. Sorry, my brother must have got it wrong. He glanced at her sideways, then looked down at his hands. His feet were dangling over the rim of the dried lake. She thought he had beautiful feet, long and narrow like a gypsy boy's. He had three large mosquito bites just above his ankle bone. They formed an almost straight line, three pinky red full stops. It doesn't matter," said Anita. "I never knew her. I was a baby when she died. I don't remember anything about her." She didn't know what to think, and this, at nine years old, was her first real experience of uncertainty. If what Roland said was true, then what she'd been told before was not true, or at least not the whole truth. The world, previously a place of straight lines and lighted spaces, became suddenly darker and full of crooked shadows. When she got home that evening, she found herself looking at her grandmother, studying her almost, and wondering who exactly she was. Meredith Sheena. A young woman still, at only fifty, her thick hair piled high on top of her head, was Meredith her grandmother at all, or some impostor sent to lie to her? The idea was frightening, but Anita could not deny there was also an element of excitement to it. She ate her supper in silence, thinking hard. She wondered what would happen if she forgot how to speak, just as the dodo had forgotten how to fly. She wondered what it would be like to spend the rest of her life as a mute. They had a mute at school, Leonie Coffin, though she was teased more for her name than for her silence. It was her grandmother who spoke first. "Are you all right, my darling? Did something bad happen today?" She was briefly tempted to say nothing because that would be more enigmatic and more in keeping with the seriousness of the situation, but in the end, the directness of her grandmother's question made her unable to resist answering it. Roland said, "Mum died on a rocket. Is that true?" Meredith Sheena had answered at once and without prevarication. It was that more than anything else that persuaded Anita that Meredith was telling the truth. She said that Anita's mother Melanie had died on board a rocket called the Aurora One. 
The rocket had been sabotaged and exploded on takeoff. Everyone on board had been killed instantly, and several ground staff had died in the fire that destroyed the launch site. Anita's father had been one of them. The papers wouldn't leave us alone, said Meredith. It was terrible for everyone, of course, but it was Melanie they were interested in because she was the only woman. But who would want to blow up a rocket when they knew there were people inside? In spite of her determination to be detached and grown up about it, Anita could feel her heart clench in her chest. People who are no good at all, said her grandmother. She sighed and bowed her head, rubbing at her eyes with the back of her hand. There were some people who thought it was bad to send human beings into space. They complained about the money it cost, and said it should be spent on feeding poor people and building schools and hospitals and churches here on Earth, but, but that wasn't the main thing. Mostly they thought that human beings shouldn't get above themselves, that if people went to fly, they would have been born with wings. A blasphemy, they called it, flying in the face of God. They called themselves the guardian angels, but what they actually did was kill people. Anita fell silent again. The feelings inside her jostled for attention. It was exciting that her mother had been a spacewoman. It was also exciting in a way that she would not have admitted to anyone except perhaps Roland Parker, that her mother had been someone important enough for people to want to kill. It was exciting, but it was also terrifying. She felt suddenly exposed, as if her life too might be in danger. She wondered if it were possible to feel grief for someone she did not remember, who was connected to her by fact but not by actuality. She asked her grandmother if she could have a photograph of her mother to keep in her room. She'd seen photographs, of course, plenty of them, images that had become so familiar they seemed to her now like film stills, pictures that made her mother common property, like, like an actress or a politician. She thought that owning one of these photographs might make her mother seem more real. Meredith Sheena went into her bedroom, and a little while later came back with a red cardboard wallet. It contained two photographs, a duplicate of the one of her mother graduating from Oxford that her grandmother kept on her dressing table, and another, previously unknown to her, showing Melanie in a checked shirt with a baby in her arms. "'That's you at eight weeks old,' said her grandmother. "'It's the only picture I have of the two of you together.' Anita's throat fell tight and closed, as if a large weight was pressing down on her windpipe. When she asked tentatively if there were any photographs of her father, her grandmother shook her head. I'm sorry, my dear, but I just don't have any. I hardly knew Malcolm, really. They, they'd only been married six weeks. Anita Schleif. Can you tell me something about how you got involved in the space program? You already had a good career as an industrial chemist, a lot of respect from your colleagues, plenty to look forward to. Some people would say you've sacrificed your humanity for the sake of the Aurora Project. What made you want to do this in the first place? Rachel Alvin. This is something I remember quite clearly. When I was 11 years old, I saw a film called Voyage to the Sun, which wasn't about space travel at all, but about the first sea transits to America and the West Indies. I'd learned these things at school, of course, but seeing the film made everything seem more real. I'd never been more excited by anything in my life. What excited me most was the idea that our world had once been dangerous, that huge areas of our planet were still unknown. 
The men who set off on those sea voyages didn't know where they were going, much less if they would ever return. They risked their lives for the sake of an adventure, and the idea of that just thrilled me to the bone. Later on, I started to read about the early space pioneers, and all those, those thoughts and feelings came back to me. I suppose they'd never really gone away. Rachel Alvin had emailed Anita to say how much she had enjoyed Anita's short film *Moon Dogs*, based around a greyhound track in Hackney. They'd corresponded for a while and then arranged to meet for lunch at an Italian restaurant in Soho. Anita was bowled over by Rachel. She was small and quietly spoken, her features too angular to be conventionally beautiful, but there was something fearless about her, an audacity in her way of thinking that made her compelling. They seemed to form an immediate bond. It was not until later, when Rachel asked her if she was related to Melanie Schleife, that Anita realized it had not been her film that had drawn Rachel to her in the first instance, but the simple fact of her surname. She was my mother, Anita said. I was eight months old when she died. I don't believe it, said Rachel. She's been a hero to me since I was small. She'd gone quite pale. And her blue eyes filled up with tears. Anita felt a surge of jealousy, and then repressed it immediately. Her mother was dead, after all. The important thing was not how she had met Rachel, but that they had met at all. I have some things of hers, she said. I could show them to you if you like. The following Sunday, Rachel had come to Anita's flat in Woolwich, and Anita had shown her the photograph she had, as well as a painted tin piggy bank, a wooden globe. A biography of Tereshkova with Melanie Muriel Sheena written across the flyleaf in blue biro. My grandmother got rid of most of her stuff because she said it was too upsetting to keep it, that it was like having a ghost in the house. Said Anita. These few things are all that's left. Later in the afternoon, she took the bus up to Shooter's Hill, and Anita showed Rachel the house she'd grown up in and where Melanie also had spent her childhood. It faced the main road, a large Victorian villa that had once been a school, but had later been divided into flats. Anita had not been there since she and her grandmother had moved out eighteen months before. She saw that the outside had been repainted; it made the place seem different, newer, almost as if her time there had been erased. The house is enormous inside, she said. There's a lane at the back that runs all the way to Oxley Woods. There were foxgloves, I. I played there all the time when I was a child. She would have liked to have shown Rachel the garden, but the side gate had been padlocked shut. It made her feel chagrined, angry almost, to be treated as an intruder in a place that had been her home for so long, even though she knew such feelings were illogical. She suddenly found herself wishing she had made more of an effort to buy the flat. I loved it here, she said. It was somewhere I always felt safe. The flat had been sold, and the money invested to pay the fees for her grandmother's retirement home. Because of its large size, the apartment had been priced out of her range, although its tired condition meant that in the end it had gone to developers. Anita thought now that if she'd fought harder, she might have found a way to afford it. She looked at Rachel taking pictures with her phone and gazing about herself like a tourist at a World Heritage site. She touched the dodo pendant through her dress. And thought how curious it was that Rachel's presence had made it possible not only for her to return to the house, but to feel nostalgia for it. It was as if her growing feelings for Rachel had opened some special compartment in her mind.
She wondered then why it was that she hadn't told her the whole truth about her mother's relics, that as well as the handful of harmless possessions she had shown her, there were several cardboard boxes of letters, diaries and photographs, things she'd found among her grandmother's papers and taken with her to her new flat in Woolwich. She'd never been through them properly. When she was a child, she supposed she'd hero-worshipped her mother, much the way that Rachel did now. But by the time she went away to college, she'd begun to feel an increasing need not to be defined by her. Her grandmother's illness had changed that for a while, but now what Anita wanted was to have her mother out of the way again. She wanted Rachel all to herself. By the time the train reached Shoreham, it was almost empty. Anita stepped down onto the platform, slamming the train door shut with a hollow bang. Sallow grass grew up between the paving slabs, and the sun beat down. There was an acrid reek of seaweed and brine. Rachel had loved this place. As a child, she'd rarely been out of London, and so the idea of the seaside had never lost its enchantment. The first time Anita had taken Rachel to see Meredith, Rachel had been on her second course of injections, and her hand-to-eye coordination was all over the place. She'd spilled a cup of tea into her lap, scalding herself quite badly. Meredith had taken over, dabbing Savlon on Rachel's burns and finding her a clean shirt to put on, an outlandish thing with a high lace collar and diamante buttons. "'I don't understand it,' Anita said afterwards when they were on the train back to London. "'The clothes she wore at home were always so dull.' "'Perhaps she feels she's free now,' said Rachel. "'Free to be what she wants instead of what people expect.' Anita had found this idea comforting. She felt humbled by Rachel's generosity of spirit, her ability to accept people simply for who they were. She turned her back on the sea. The tide was far out, and there was nothing to see but mudflats. Southwater House was only a half a mile from the station, but it was a stiff uphill climb. She supposed the view from the top was part of what made the place appealing. The retirement home catered for about thirty full-time residents— and with its tiled hallways and sloping lawns, it reminded her a little of one of the 1920s seaside hotels in the old-fashioned detective stories her grandmother had once enjoyed, novels by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. The staff seemed to connive in the illusion. Anita privately thought that some of them were more eccentric than most of the residents. There was something chaotic about the place, and it was precisely this that had convinced her that her grandmother would be happy there. The hallway smelled of pine detergent and fermenting grass clippings, a scent that invariably reminded her of the day Meredith had come here to live. The dismantling of the Shooter's Hill flat had been very difficult for her, and she'd arrived at Southwater House, tearful and disoriented. When Anita tried to kiss her goodbye, she clung to her and called her Melanie. The next time Anita saw her grandmother, she was different, but better. Anita wondered if Rachel was right, that Meredith was finally feeling the freedom to be herself. The reception desk was unmanned. Anita hesitated, wondering if she should ring the bell or continue upstairs. Eventually, someone appeared, a young woman with peroxide hair and glasses. She was wheeling a linen cart with one hand and clutching a sheaf of newspapers in the other. Anita thought she recognised her from a previous visit, but couldn't remember her name. Miss Shana, she said, your grandmother's in a room. She hasn't been feeling too bright today, I'm afraid. Anita felt the usual surprise at being addressed by her grandmother's surname. It was as if, in some sense, she'd become her grandmother. 
She didn't know if the staff here were ignorant of her actual surname or whether the woman had simply forgotten. What do you mean? she said. Why didn't you call me? The peroxide nurse took a step backwards. There's nothing to worry about, she said. She isn't ill or anything, just a bit down in the dumps. Anita took this as a euphemism, that the woman was trying to tell her that Meredith was going through one of her confused periods. It had been less than a week since she had seen her, but in Meredith Sheena's world, Anita knew that time could be an unstable commodity. Five days might slip by without notice, or they might seem to pass as slowly as five years. She smiled vaguely at the nurse and then made her way quickly upstairs. Meredith's room was on the first floor overlooking the sea. It was large and bright and full of things. There were things Anita remembered from Shooter's Hill, of course, but there was also much that was new. China ornaments and embroidered cushion covers, brightly coloured alien objects that scrambled for possession of every surface. Like the ostentatious clothes, they seemed more a part of the new Meredith than the old one. Anita couldn't help noticing a certain accumulation of dust. She supposed it was impossible for the staff to keep pace with her grandmother's clutter. Meredith was in the armchair beside the bed. Her eyes were open, but there was a fixed, empty quality to her gaze that made her seem like a different person. Anita's breath caught in her throat. "'Are you all right, Gran?' she said. She knelt beside her grandmother's chair, taking both hands in hers. Meredith's fingers gripped back tightly like an anxious child's. I want to talk to Rachel, she said. There's something I need to tell her. She seemed suddenly fully aware, as if a switch had been thrown inside her. Her eyes blazed with a furious life. It was as if she had grown younger by twenty years. Uh, Rachel isn't here, Gran, said Anita. Her leave is finished. She'll be flying back to America next week. I told you this last night on the phone. She felt full of a cold and desperate pity. She wondered if this was how her grandmother had felt when she had to explain to Anita that her mother was dead. In a small corner of her mind, she envied Meredith for being able to exist in a world where Rachel was still retrievable, where the possibility existed of her imminent return. She felt tears start at the back of her eyes. She bowed her head, hoping that her grandmother was now beyond noticing such things. She had heard that a large part of the illness was self-absorption and inability to process events in the outside world. But Meredith wrested a hand free and grabbed at her, tilting her face towards her as she had used to do when Anita was a child. You look sad, she said. Has something bad happened to Rachel? Anita gazed up at her, thinking as she often thought how strange it was that they looked so little alike. Anita's mother had been blonde and robust, taking after the Dutch sea captain, Claire Sheena, who'd been her father. And from what she could tell from the photographs, Anita was exactly like her. Meredith Sheena was a small, Celtic-looking woman with fine bones and heavy-lidded, deep-set eyes. Her hair, once black, had begun to go grey shortly after Melanie died. Anita felt her heart crushed by tenderness for her. She had always shown such fortitude. Even now, in her helplessness, she was busy thinking of others. No, Gran. Rachel's fine. If there's anything you want to say to her, just you tell me. I can pass your message along next time she phones. Meredith's grip relaxed, and the fierceness went out of her eyes. Not to worry, my darling. I wanted to tell her she's just like Melanie, but it doesn't matter now that she's gone. She caressed Anita's hair, looking suddenly tired. Anita stared at her blankly. 
She thought of Rachel's gangling limbs, her flat chest and copper hair and freckled face. Before the Kushnev drain was started, Rachel had used to joke that she was more than half cockroach already. There was no way she could be compared with Melanie, who was as like Anita with her fair skin and apple cheeks as two panes of glass in a window frame. And yet she supposed, after all, that it was true. Rachel and Melanie were both courageous women of action, both prepared to die for what they believed in. Whereas Anita had always been content just to stand and watch. Her mother hadn't loved her enough to stay on earth for her, and neither had Rachel. Anita began to weep. It's all my fault, Gran, she said. I should have found a way to stop her, but I, I don't know how. I love her so much. It's almost worse than if she were dead. If Rachel were dead, she would in some sense be safe, safe to be remembered and loved. As it was, she lived on as a monster, dedicated to a life where personal feeling was nothing when set against her vocation, the mysterious inner voice that told her that her place was not here, but elsewhere, somewhere so far away that it was impossible for the normal mind to conceive it. And yet, in a hundred years from now, when Anita was dead and buried, would Rachel sometimes think of her? and remember the afternoon they'd spent together on Shooter's Hill, the foxgloves bright as bunting in the overgrown grass. She hugged her grandmother's knees and cried. She thought how furious the peroxide nurse would be if she came in and found her in such a state. She struggled to control her tears. Uh, I'm sorry, Gran, she said. Uh, I didn't mean to upset you. I'm, I'm just tired. Her grandmother was silent, her eyes fixed on some invisible horizon, her hands now lying still at her sides. Anita's heart lurched. For one impossible moment she wondered if her grandmother was dead, had died because of her crying, and for this too she would be to blame. Then at last her hands moved, rustling the stiff mauve silk of the skirt she was wearing. Anita got to her feet and stood over her anxiously. The dodo pendant swung free of her blouse and hung in mid-air, twisting slowly at the end of its chain. "'Can I get you anything?' said Anita. "'Would you like a cup of tea?' Mary the Sheena looked up and smiled, creasing the delicate skin at the corners of her eyes. Then she reached out for the pendant, grabbing at it like a small child trying to catch a butterfly. She batted it with her fingers, making it dance and shudder, the closest it would ever get to natural flight. I blamed myself for years over Melanie, she said. We had such a terrible row the day before she left. You were so tiny still, and I told her she was a fool and, and selfish, that she was neglecting you for the sake of her career. She said I was jealous, that I wanted to turn her into a housewife just like I was. None of that was true, but I was using you as an excuse just the same. She did this strange thing, you see. She, she asked me to look after that pendant. She'd never done anything like that before, and she never took off that chain. Her best friend in college gave it to her, and she always wore it, even in the shower. I got it into my head that something terrible was going to happen. I, I couldn't bear the thought of losing her, you see. She took Anita's hand, squeezing her fingers with surprising strength. I used to take photographs, too, a long time ago. There was a time when I thought I might make something of it, but what with Melanie being born and class leaving me like, that it was all so difficult, so complicated. 
I suppose I just let things slide. I was just beginning to think I might take it up again, pick up where I left off, but... But then Melanie died, and it was as if the tide had gone out and left me stranded. Like walking along the beach at dusk, you know how it is here, when the tide is out and the sand is wet and shiny as a mirror. It's beautiful, the dusk, but it's the loneliest time of the day. I felt so lost, as if I'd never be able to find my way home again. I even felt some sympathy with them, you know, with the people who did it, the god people. The idea of space travel seemed so terrifying, so... So dangerous, like straying into a house where bad things are. It felt all wrong to me, even though I was so proud of her I could hardly breathe. She reached for the pendant again, holding it between thumb and finger. Your friend Rachel was so beautiful. I think she is very brave to give all that up. She still is beautiful, Gran, said Anita. At least she is to me. She sat down on the edge of the bed. Her eyes felt swollen from crying. Come on, she said. Let's go and see who's in the dining room. She stood up and put out her hand. Her grandmother stared at it in bewilderment as if it's some miraculous apparition. Anita wondered how much of their conversation she would remember. The new drugs showed amazing results, but the doctor had warned her not to be over-optimistic about the long-term prognosis. It's like blowing on dying embers, he said. There's a glow and a little warmth, but um, it doesn't last. It struck her how unusual it was, his mode of expression, so rich in metaphor, almost like the speech of a poet. She thought of his tired eyes, his twisted fingers, of how kind he was really, especially when delivering bad news. How he seemed to take each failure to heart, as if he were personally responsible for medicine being so powerless against death. I wonder if I could film him, she thought. I wonder if he would let me, if I asked. The boxes were in the cupboard under the stairs, pushed right to the back behind the vacuum cleaner and her grandmother's old ironing board. There were three of them, two large ones stamped with the logo of a well-known food company and another half the size, which was unmarked. She opened the small box first. She had only sketchy memories of packing the crates of what had gone into each of them, but she saw almost at once that what the third box contained was mostly her mother's official papers, birth certificate, passport, medical, and nothing of immediate importance. The other two were more interesting. These contained photographs and postcards, letters from old boyfriends, a fudge tin full of pin badges, and a pencil sharpener in the shape of the Apollo 13. At the bottom of the second crate, there were three cloth-bound notebooks that contained Melanie's diary for her final year at Oxford and for the months leading up to her enrolment in the space program. Anita was surprised to learn she'd gone in as a ground engineer. She supposed this was how she had met Malcolm Schleif, although there was no mention of him in these pages. Tucked into the inside cover of one of the notebooks was a postcard, a colour reproduction of Roland Savary's Dodo in the Landscape. A single sentence, Don't forget your wings, was scrawled across the back in spiky black capitals. The card had been posted from Oxford and was addressed to Melanie at the Shooter's Hill flat. It was signed, With all love from Suzanne. Anita could see from the postmark that it had been sent less than a month before her mother's death. She searched quickly through the bundles of letters, 
hoping to discover some clue to Suzanne's identity. After five minutes or so, she found what she was looking for, a brown jiffy bag containing several dozen handwritten letters and about the same number of email printouts, all from a Suzanne Behrens, who wrote sometimes from Hamburg and sometimes from Oxford, but always in tones of affection and intimacy. For some reason, Suzanne's letters, with their bawdy in-jokes and cosy diminutives, made her mother more real to Anita than all her grandmother's reminiscences put together. Her hands were filthy with dust. She wiped them against her jeans and went to put the kettle on. Just as the water boiled, the phone rang. When she picked up the receiver, she found herself speaking to Serge. "'I was just seeing if you were back yet,' he said. "'I couldn't get through on your mobile. I was starting to get a bit worried.' My phone battery went flat, she said. I, I forgot to take my charger. I only got back this morning. All three statements were lies. She'd been back in London three days, and after the fourth successive call from Serge, she'd simply switched off her phone. For some reason she could not define, Rachel's departure had changed everything. Also, she could not forget the way he had sounded when she had last spoken to him, the sense that he had something to hide. She would have liked to put off their conversation indefinitely, but she knew this was impossible. Sooner or later, she would have to face up to what had happened. She asked him how he was, and he said he was fine. He asked after her grandmother, and she mumbled back some stilted reply. There was a short, uncomfortable silence, and then he told her what she knew he had called about in the first place. Um, listen, Anita, he said. I thought I should tell you I've started seeing someone. I didn't want you to hear it from someone else. Her name was Bella Altman and she was a composer of electronic music. You've probably heard some of her stuff, actually, he said. She's done hundreds of commercials. Her work is all over the place. He laughed, a small, tight sound that she'd never heard before. She realized he'd been waiting to tell her ever since their last phone call, that perhaps he'd wanted to tell her even then. Why are you telling me this, she said. Don't you think you should be telling Rachel instead? There was another uncomfortable silence. Do you think she has to know? He said finally. She's hardly going to find out on her own. He was asking her permission to treat Rachel as if she were dead. No, she thought suddenly. He's trying to find out if you mean to tell her yourself. She felt an anger so deep and so cold she knew there was no way back from it, that if she and Serge ever met again it would be as strangers. I'm not going to rat on you if that's what you're afraid of, she said. What you do is none of my business. It's Rachel that I care about, not you. She waited for a moment to see if he would say anything else, and then she put down the phone. She topped up her coffee mug with boiling water and then went back to sorting Melanie's letters. She wondered what might be the best way of trying to trace Suzanne Behrens. Civilian flights to the States had become almost prohibitively expensive, but Clement Anderson had supported Anita's visa application, which had enabled her to claim back some of the cost in the form of a research grant. A junior officer had met her at the airport and escorted her to a motel a short bus ride from the base. Then there were the inevitable protocols, two days of debriefing and form-filling. She had asked if she could film these processes, but her request had been politely denied. The flight crew of the Aurora 6 were now being kept in more or less permanent isolation. 
Each member was allowed one last visit prior to launch day, a final 30 minutes with a friend or family member from outside. Anita had been able to speak to Rachel several times on the telephone, but she had always assumed the visit would go to search. The invitation came out of the blue. Finally, she was taken to a room that was bare of everything, except a table and two chairs, and in the corner a low sofa covered in brown leatherette. There was a pane of smoked glass set into one wall that she guessed was a two-way mirror. At the end of some ten minutes waiting, the door opened, and Rachel appeared. She was dressed in grey overalls, silk or some synthetic substitute. What remained of her hair was mostly hidden under a close-fitting cap that reminded Anita of the caps worn by surgeons in the operating theatre. A few strands of hair that were showing looked dry and brittle, almost like tufts of grass. Her lips were the colour of beetroot. They looked stuck to her face more than part of it, fissured and clotted as scabs. She closed the door behind her and stepped into the room. Her wrists, poking out from the loose sleeves of the overall, were skeletal. Her fingernails thickened and black. Her eyes were hard and glazed, barely human. It was only in the delicate line of her jaw, the fine, high arch of her brow, that any traces of her beauty now remained. Anita got up from the table and went towards her. She felt a dull ache beneath her breastbone, as if she were trying to hold her breath underwater. Is it, is it all right to touch you? she said. Of course it is, said Rachel. Come here. They embraced. Rachel's body felt like a bundle of glass tubes held together by strips of paper and pieces of string. She smelled like farm silage, or like the heaps of grass clippings on the compost heap at Southwater House. They sat down either side of the formica table. Anita touched Rachel's hand, thinking how, from the other side of the two-way mirror, they must look like two actors in some prison drama. She's really going up, thought Anita. For the first time the sight of her friend brought not sorrow or anger, but awe. They talked together in quiet voices. Rachel asked about Meredith, and Anita told her about her search for Suzanne Behrens. "'I want to interview her for the film,' said Anita. "'From her letters it looks as if she knew my mother better than anyone.' "'The film will be wonderful,' said Rachel. "'Your mother would have been so proud.' Anita stroked the backs of her hands. As their half-hour drew towards its close, she unhooked the dodo pendant from around her neck and handed it to Rachel.' The chain still carried the warmth of her own body. "'Take her with you, wherever you're going,' she said. "'It's what she wanted most in the world.' Rachel's diamond eyes seemed to shimmer. She closed her fingers around the silver slowly, as if to touch anything that solid was now painful for her. "'I'll be taking you both,' she said. Her voice was a dry whisper like long grass moving gently in the wind. I couldn't have done this without you. It took Anita some time to track down a copy of Voyage to the Sun. So far as she could tell, it had never been released on DVD, and when she finally located a video copy on some obscure fan site, she was surprised at how much it cost to have it transferred to disc. The print was by no means perfect, but for a VHS transfer, it was more than acceptable. For Anita, 
Voyage to the Sun seemed to epitomize the epic style of filmmaking that had reached its zenith towards the end of the 20th century. It was a long film, almost three hours, replete with significant imagery and spectacular, if rather dated, special effects. The film's main actors were Rowan Amherst as the ship's captain, Hilary Benson as the first mate, and Aurelie Pelling as Lillian Furness, the captain's fiancée, nominated for an Oscar in her role. Anita found all three of them impressive, although for her the star was undoubtedly the young Joshua Samuelson in the part of Lyndon Brooks, the cabin boy. It was his first major role, and he played it brilliantly. The character of Brooks was ambiguous. He was intelligent, but devious, brave, but duplicitous, and Samuelson brought out these contradictions with insight and flair. Anita thought it significant and appropriate that the main focus of the film's closing sequence was not the half-starved captain or the mutinous first mate, but the Machiavellian cabin boy. Alone of everyone on board, he seemed to thrive on the harsh conditions. His skin was scorched almost black, and there was not a spare ounce of body fat on him, and yet his pale eyes burned with a pure light that was almost ecstatic in its intensity. He flew hand over hand up the rigging to the crow's nest, skinny and agile as a monkey. Land! he screamed out. Land ho! His salt-clogged hair flamed red against an azure sky. The images were pure Hollywood, but in the way of all great cinema they were inspiring and in their own way beautiful. Anita found she had no trouble in understanding how the child Rachel her young soul already on fire with romantic ideals, would have identified with these fictional pioneers. Lyndon Brooks the cabin boy, with his blaze of red hair and frenzied excitement at the sight of a new continent, might easily have been her twin brother. She ejected the disc from the machine and replaced it carefully in its clear plastic case, knowing it was a part of Rachel she could keep close to her forever. She thought of her friend, suspended in space, her inner processes as mysterious and miraculous now as those of a chrysalis, and distinctly felt a message pass between them. I will put a link on to Nina's site and to Nicola for the fine narration and to Interzone. Do pop over there and say thank you. So the next one is Aliette de Boudard's The Shipmaker, and this came out in Interzone 231. It is narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present The Shipmaker by Aliette de Boudard. Ships were living, breathing beings. Dakian had known this even before she'd reached the engineering habitat even before she'd seen the great mass in orbit outside being slowly assembled by the bots. Her ancestors had once carved jade in the bygone days of the Leth dynasty on Old Earth, not hacking the green blocks into the shape they wanted, but rather whittling down the stone until its true nature was revealed. And as with jade, so with ships. The sections outside couldn't be forced together, they had to flow into a seamless whole, to be, in the end, inhabited by a mind who was as much a part of the ship as every rivet and every seal. The Easterners, or the Mexica, didn't understand. They spoke of recycling, of design efficiency, 
They saw only the parts taken from previous ships and assumed it was done to save money and time. They didn't understand why Dakian's work as Grand Master of Design Harmony was the most important on the habitat. The ship, once made, would be one entity and not a patchwork of ten thousand others. To Dakian, and to the one who would come after her, the mind bearer, fell the honor of helping the ship into being, of transforming metal and cables and solar cells into an entity that would sail the void between the stars. The door slid open. Dakian barely looked up. The light tread of the feet told her this was one of the lead designers, either Miahua or Fung. Neither would have disturbed her without cause. With a sigh, she disconnected from the system with a flick of her hands and waited for the design's overlay on her vision to disappear. Your Excellency? Miahua's voice was quiet. The Shuyan held herself upright, her skin as pale as yellowed wax. The shuttle has come back. There's someone on board you should see. Dakian had expected many things. A classmate from the examinations on a courtesy visit. An imperial censor from Dungjing calling her to some other posting, even further away from the capital. Or perhaps even someone from her family, mother or sister or uncle's wife, here to remind her of the unsuitability of her life choices. She hadn't expected a stranger. A woman with brown skin, almost dark enough to be Viet herself, her lips thin and white, her eyes as round as the moon. A Mexica, a foreigner. Dakian stopped the thought before it could go far, for the woman wore no cotton, no feathers, but the silk robes of a Shuyan housewife, and the five wedding gifts, all pure gold from necklace to bracelets, shone like stars on the darkness of her skin. Dakian's gaze traveled down to the curve of the woman's belly, a protruding bulge so voluminous that it threw her whole silhouette out of balance. I greet you, younger sister. I am Dakian, Grand Master of Design Harmony for this habitat. She used the formal tone, suitable for addressing a stranger. Elder sister. The Mexica's eyes were bloodshot, set deep within the heavy face. I am... She grimaced, one hand going to her belly as if to tear it out. Sakittle, she whispered at last, the accents of her voice slipping back to the harsh patterns of her native tongue. My name is Zakittle. Her eyes started to roll upwards, and she went on, taking on the cadences of something learnt by rote. I am the womb and the resting place, the quickener and the mind-bearer. Dakian's stomach roiled as if an icy fist were squeezing it. You're early. The ship... The ship has to be ready. The interjection surprised her. All her attention had been focused on the Mexica, Zakittal, and what her coming here meant. Now she forced herself to look at the other passenger off the shuttle, a Shuyan man in his mid-thirties. His accent was that of Anjiu province, on the fifth planet. His robes, with the partridge badge and the button of gold, were those of a minor official of the seventh rank, 
but they were marked with the yin-yang symbol, showing stark black and white against the silk. You're the birthmaster, she said. He bowed. I have that honor. His face was harsh, all angles and planes on which the light caught, highlighting the thin lips, the high cheekbones. Forgive me, my abruptness, but there is no time to lose. I don't understand. Dakian looked again at the woman, whose eyes bore a glazed look of pain. She's early, she said, flatly, and she wasn't speaking of their arrival time. The birthmaster nodded. How long? A week, at most, the birthmaster grimaced. The ship has to be ready. Dakian tasted bile in her mouth. The ship was all but made, and, like a jade statue, it would brook no corrections nor oversights. Dakian and her team had designed it specifically for the mind within Zakitl's womb, starting out from the specifications the imperial alchemists had given them, the delicate balance of humors, optics, and flesh that made up the being Zakitl carried. The ship would answer to nothing else. Only Zakitl's mind would be able to seize the heart room, to quicken the ship, and take it into deep planes where fast star travel was possible. I can't, Dakian started, but the birthmaster shook his head, and she didn't need to hear his answer to know what he would say. She had to. This had been the posting she'd argued for after she came in second at the state examinations. This, not a magistrate's tribunal and district, not a high-placed situation in the palace's administration, not the prestigious courtyard of writing brushes, as would have been a right. This was what the imperial court would judge her on. She wouldn't get another chance. A week! Han shook her head. What do they think you are, a Mexico factory overseer? Han... It had been a long day, and Dakian had come back to their quarters looking for comfort. In hindsight, she should have known how Han would take the news. Her partner was an artist, a poet, always seeking the right word and the right allusion, ideally suited to understanding the delicacy that went into the design of a ship, less than ideal to acknowledge any need for urgency. "'I have to do this,' Dakian said." Han grimaced. "'Because they're pressuring you into it. You know what it will look like.' She gestured towards the low mahogany table in the center of the room. The ship's design hung inside a translucent cube, gently rotating, the glimpses of its interior interspersed with views of other ships, the ones from which it had taken its inspiration. All the great from the red carp to the golden mountain and the snow-white blossom.' Their hulls gleamed in the darkness, slowly and subtly bending out of shape to become the final structure of the ship hanging outside the habitat. "'It's a hole, little sis. You can't butcher it and hope to keep your reputation intact.' "'She could die of it,' Dakian said at last, "'of the birth, and it would be worse if she did it for nothing. "'The girl, she's Gwei, foreign.' meaning she shouldn't matter. So were we once upon a time, 
Jack Kean said. You have a short memory. Han opened her mouth, closed it. She could have pointed out that they weren't quite Gui, that China, Shu Ye's motherland, had once held Daie Viet for centuries, but Han was proud of being Viet, and certainly not about to mention such shameful details. It's the girl that's bothering you, then? She does what she wants, Dakian says. For the prize, Han's voice was faintly contemptuous. Most of the girls who bore minds were young and desperate, willing to face the dangers of the pregnancy in exchange for a marriage to a respected official, for a status of their own, a family that would welcome the men, and a chance to bear children of good birth. Both Han and Dakian had made the opposite choice long ago. For them, as for every Shuyan who engaged in same-gender relationships, there would be no children, no one to light incense at the ancestral altars, no voices to chant and honor their names after they were gone. Through life, they would be second-class citizens, consistently failing to accomplish their duties to their ancestors. In death, they would be spurned, forgotten, gone as if they had never been. I don't know, Dakian said. She's Mexica. They see things differently, where she comes from. From what you're telling me, she's doing this for Shuyan reasons. For fame and for children, all that Han despised, what she called their shackles, their overwhelming need to produce children generation after generation. Dakian bit her lip, wishing she could have Han's unwavering certainties. It's not as if I have much choice in the matter. Han was silent for a while. At length she moved, came to rest behind Dakian, her hair falling down over Dakian's shoulders, her hands trailing at Dakian's nape. You're the one who keeps telling me we always have a choice, Lil Sis. Dakian shook her head. She said that when weary of her family's repeated reminders that she should marry and have children, when they lay in the darkness side by side after making love, and she saw the future stretching in front of her, childless and ringed by old prejudices. Han, much as she tried, didn't understand. She'd always wanted to be a scholar, had always known that she'd grow up to love another woman. She'd always got what she wanted, and she was convinced she only had to wish for something hard enough for it to happen. And Han had never wished, would never wish, for children. It's not the same, Dakian said at last, cautiously submitting to Han's caresses. It was something else entirely, and even Han had to see that. I chose to come here. I chose to make my name that way, and we always have to see our choices through. Han's hands on her shoulders tightened. You're one to talk. I can see you wasting yourself in regrets, wondering if there's still time to turn back to respectability. But you chose me, this life, these consequences. We both chose. Han. It's not that, Dakian wanted to say. She loved Han. She truly did. But she was a stone thrown in the darkness, a ship adrift without nav, lost, 
without family or husband to approve of her actions, and without the comfort of a child destined to survive her. "'Grow up, little sis!' Han's voice was harsh, her face turned away towards the paintings of landscapes on the wall. "'You're no one's toy or slave, and especially not your family's.' "'Because they had all but disowned her. "'But words, as usual, failed Dak Kean, "'and they went to bed with the shadow of the old argument still between them, "'like the blade of a sword. "'The next day, Dak Kean pored over the design of the ship with Fung and Miowa, "'wondering how she could modify it. "'The parts were complete, and assembling them would take a few days at most, "'but the resulting structure would never be a ship.' That much was clear to all of them. Even accepting the tests, there was at least a month's work ahead of them, slow and subtle touches laid by the bots over the overall system to align it with its destined mind. Dakian had taken the cube from her quarters and brought it into her office under Han's glowering gaze. Now they all crowded around it, voicing ideas, the cups of tea forgotten in the intensity of the moment. Fung's wrinkled face was creased in thought as he tapped one side of the cube. We could modify the shape of this corridor here. Wood would run through the whole ship, and... Miohua shook her head. She was their master of wind and water, the one who could best read the lines of influence, the one Dakian turned to when she herself had a doubt over the layout. Fung was commissioner of supplies, managing the systems and safety. In many ways, Mia was opposite, given to small adjustments rather than large ones, pragmatic, where she verged on the mystical. The humors of water and wood would stagnate here in the control room. Mia pursed her lips, pointed to the slender aft of the ship. The shape of this section should be modified. Fung sucked in a breath. That's not trivial. For my team to rewrite the electronics... Dakian listened to them arguing distantly, intervening with a question from time to time to keep the conversation from dying down. In her mind, she held the shape of the ship, felt it breathe through the glass of the cube, through the layers of fibers and metal that separated her from the structure outside. She held the shape of the mind, the essences and emotions that made it, the layout of its sockets and cables, of its muscles and flesh, and slid them together gently, softly, until they seemed made for one another. She looked up. Both Fung and Miohua had fallen silent, waiting for her to speak. This way, she said. Remove this section altogether and shift the rest of the layout. As she spoke, she reached into the glass matrix and carefully excised the offending section, Rerouting corridors and links of cable, burning new decorative calligraphy onto the curved walls. I don't think, Fung said and stopped. Miohua? Miohua was watching the new design carefully. I need to think about it, Your Excellency. Let me discuss it with my subordinates. Dakian made a gesture of approval. Remember that we don't have much time. They both took a copy of the design with them, snug in their long sleeves. Left alone, Dakian stared at the ship again. It was squat, its proportions out of kilter, not even close to what she had imagined. 
not even true to the spirit of her work, a mockery of the original design, like a flower without petals, or a poem that didn't quite gel, hovering on the edge of poignant illusions but never expressing them properly. We don't always have a choice, she whispered. She'd have prayed to her ancestors had she thought they were still listening. Perhaps they were. Perhaps the shame of having a daughter who would have no descendants was erased by the exalted heights of her position. Or perhaps not. Her mother and grandmother were unforgiving. What made her think that those more removed ancestors would understand her decision? Elder sister? Zakhidl stood at the door, hovering uncertainly. Dakian's face must have revealed more than she thought. She forced herself to breathe, relaxing all her muscles until it was once more the blank mask required by protocol. Younger sister, she said, you honor me by your presence. Zakhidl shook her head. She slid carefully into the room, careful not to lose her balance. I wanted to see the ship. The birthmaster was nowhere to be seen. Dakian hoped that he had been right about the birth, that it wasn't about to happen now in her office with no destination and no assistance. It's here. She shifted positions on her chair, invited Zakhidl to sit. Zakhidl wedged herself into one of the seats, her movements fragile, measured, as if any wrong gesture would shatter her. Behind her loomed one of Dakian's favorite paintings, an image from the third planet, a delicate, peaceful landscape of waterfalls and ochre cliffs, with the distant light of stars reflected in the water. Zakhidl didn't move as Dakian showed her the design. Her eyes were the only thing which seemed alive in the whole of her face. When Dakian was finished, the burning gaze was transferred to her, looking straight into her eyes, a clear breach of protocol. You're just like the others. You don't approve, Zakhidl said. It took Dakian a moment to process the words, but they still meant nothing to her. I don't understand. Zakhidl's lips pursed. Where I come from, it's an honor to bear minds for the glory of the Mexica Dominion. But you're here, Dakian said. In Shuya, among Shuyans, where to bear minds was a sacrifice, necessary and paid for, but ill-considered, for who would want to endure a pregnancy yet produce no human child, only the desperate or the greedy? You're here as well. Zakhidl's voice was almost an accusation. For an agonizing moment, Dakian thought Zakhidl was referring to her life choices. How did she know about Han? about her family's stance. Then she understood that Zakhidl had been talking about her place on board the habitat. I like being in space, Dakian said at last, and it wasn't a lie. Being here, almost alone, away from everyone else? And this wasn't paperwork or the slow drain of catching and prosecuting lawbreakers, of keeping heaven's order on some remote planet, this was everything scholarship was meant to be, taking all that the past had given them and reshaping it into greatness, every part throwing its neighbors into sharper relief, an eternal reminder of how history had brought them here and how it would carry them forward again 
and again. Zakitl said, not looking at the ship anymore, Shuya is a harsh place for foreigners. The language isn't so bad, but when you have no money and no sponsor. She breathed in quick and sharp. I do what needs doing. Her hand went to the mound of her belly and stroked it. And I give him life. How can you not value this? She used the animate pronoun without a second thought. Dakian shivered. He's... She paused, groping for words. He has no father. A mother, perhaps, but there isn't much of you inside him. He won't be counted among your descendants. He won't burn incense on your altar or chant your name among the stars. But he won't die. Zakitl's voice was soft and cutting. Not for centuries. The ships made by the Mexica Dominion lived long, but their minds slowly went insane from repeated journeys into deep plains. This mind, with a proper anchor, a properly aligned ship. Zakitl was right. He would remain as he was long after she and Zakitl were both dead. He, no, it, it was a machine, a sophisticated intelligence, an assembly of flesh and metal and heaven knew what else. Born like a child, but still. I think I'm the one who doesn't understand. Zakitl pulled herself to her feet slowly. Dakian could hear her labored breath, could smell the sour, sharp sweat rolling off her. Thank you, elder sister. And then she was gone, but her words remained. Dakian threw herself into her work, as she had done before when preparing for the state examinations. Han pointedly ignored her when she came home, making only the barest attempts at courtesy. She was working again on her calligraphy, mingling Shuyan characters with the letters of the Viet alphabet to create a work that spoke both as a poem and as a painting. It wasn't unusual. Dakian had come to be accepted for her talent, but her partner was another matter. Han wasn't welcome in the banquet room, where the families of the other engineers would congregate in the evenings. She preferred to remain alone in their quarters rather than endure the barely concealed snubs or the pitying looks of the others. What gave the air its leaden weight, though, was her silence. Dakian tried at first, keeping up a chatter as if nothing were wrong. Han raised bleary eyes from her manuscript and said simply, "'You know what you're doing, little sis. Live with it for once.' So it was silence in the end. It suited her better than she'd thought it would. It was her and the design, with no one to blame or interfere." Miowa's team and Fung's team were rewiring the structure and rearranging the parts. Outside the window, the mass of the hole shifted and twisted to align itself with the cube on her table, by hour after by hour, as the bots gently slid sections into place and sealed them. The last section was being put into place when Miowa and the birthmaster came to see her, both looking equally preoccupied. Her heart sank. Don't tell me, Dakian said. She's due now. She's lost the waters, the birthmaster said. 
He spat on the floor to ward off evil spirits, who always crowded around the mother in the hour of a birth. You have a few by-hours at most. Milwa? Dakian wasn't looking at either of them, but rather at the ship outside, the huge bulk that dwarfed them all in its shadow. Her master of wind and water was silent for a while, usually a sign that she was arranging problems in the most suitable order. Not good. The structure will be finished before this by-hour is over. But, Dakian said, but it's a mess. The lines of wood cross those of metal, and there are humors mingling with each other and stagnating everywhere. The chi won't flow. The chi, the breath of the universe, of the dragon that lay at the heart of every planet, of every star. As master of wind and water, it was Miawa's role to tell Dakian what had gone wrong. But as grand master of design harmony, it fell to Dakian to correct this. Milwa could only point out the results she saw. Only Dakian could send the bots in to make the necessary adjustments to the structure. I see, Dakian said. Prepare a shuttle for her, have it wait outside close to the ship's docking bay. Your Excellency, the birthmaster started, but Dakian cut him off. I have told you before, the ship will be ready. Miwa's stance as she left was tense, all pent-up fears. Dakian thought of Han, alone in their room, stubbornly bent over her poem, her face as harsh as that of the birthmaster, its customary roundness sharpened by anger and resentment. She'd say, again, that you couldn't hurry things, that there were always possibilities. She'd say that, but she'd never understood there was always a price, and that if you didn't pay it... Others did. The ship would be ready, and Dakian would pay its price in full. Alone again, Dakian connected to the system, letting the familiar overlay of the design take over her surroundings. She adjusted the contrast until the design was all she could see, and then she set to work. Miwa was right. The ship was a mess. They had envisioned having a few days to tidy things up, to soften the angles of the corridors, to spread the wall lanterns so there were no dark corners or spots shining with blinding light. The heart room alone, the pentacle-shaped center of the ship where the mind would settle, had strands of four humors coming to an abrupt, painful stop within, and a sharp line just outside its entrance, marking the bot's hasty ceiling. The killing breath, it was called, and it was everywhere. Ancestors, watch over me. A living, breathing thing, jade, whittled down to its essence. Dakian slid into her trance, her consciousness expanding to encompass the bots around the structure, sending them, one by one, inside the metal hull, scuttling down the curved corridors and passageways, gently merging with the walls, starting the slow and painful work of coaxing the metal into its proper shape, going up into the knot of cables, straightening them out, regulating the current in the larger ones. In her mind's view, the ship seemed to flicker and fold back upon itself. 
She hung suspended outside, watching the bots crawl over it like ants, injecting commands into the different sections in order to modify their balance of humors and inner structure. She cut to the shuttle, where Zakitl lay on her back, her face distorted in a grimace. The birthmaster's face was grim, turned upwards as if he could guess at Dakian's presence. Hurry. You don't have time left. Hurry. And still she worked. Walls turned into mirrors. Flowers were carved into the passageways, softening those hard angles and lines she couldn't disguise. She opened up a fountain. All light projections, of course. There could be no real water aboard. And let the recreated sound of a stream fill the structure. Inside the heart room, the four tangled humors became three, then one. Then... She brought in other lines until the tangle twisted back upon itself, forming a complicated knot pattern that allowed strands of all five humors to flow around the room. Water, wood, fire, earth, metal, all circling the ship's core, a stabilizing influence for the mind when it came to anchor itself there. She flicked back the display to the shuttle, saw Zakhittle's face, and the unbearable lines of tension in the other's face. Hurry. It was not ready. But life didn't wait until you were ready. Dakian turned off the display, but not the connection to the bots, leaving them time to finish their last tasks. Now, she whispered into the comm system. The shuttle launched itself towards the docking bay. Dakian dimmed the overlay, letting the familiar side of the room reassert itself, with the cube and the design that should have been, the perfect one, the one that called to mind the red carp and the turtle over the waves and the dragon's twin dreams, all the days of Shuya from the Exodus to the Pearl Wars and the fall of the Shan Dynasty, and older things, too, Liloy's sword that had established a Viet dynasty, the dragon with spread wings flying over Hanoi, the old earth capital, the face of Huyen Tran, the Viet princess traded to foreigners in return for two provinces. The bots were turning themselves off one by one, and a faint breeze ran through the ship, carrying the smell of sea-laden water and of incense. It could have been that ship, that masterpiece, if she'd had time. Han was right. She could have made it work. It would have been hers, perfect, praised, remembered in the centuries to come, used as inspiration by hundreds of other grandmasters. If. She didn't know how long she'd been staring at the design, but an agonized cry tore her from her thoughts. Startled, she turned up the ship's feet again and selected a view into the birthing room. The lights had been dimmed, leaving shadows everywhere like a prelude to morning. Dakian could see the bowl of tea given at the beginning of labor. It had rolled into a corner of the room, a few drops scattering across the floor. Zakitl crouched against a high-backed chair, framed by hollows of two goddesses who watched over childbirth, the princess of the blue and purple clouds and the bodhisattva of mercy. In the shadows... Her face seemed to be that of a demon, the alienness of her features distorted by pain. Push, 
the birthmaster was saying, his hands on the quivering mound of her belly. Push. Blood ran down Zakhidil's thighs, staining the metal surfaces until they reflected everything in shades of red. But her eyes were proud, those of an old warrior race who'd never bent or bowed to anybody else. Her child of flesh, when it came, would be delivered the same way. Dakian thought of Han and of sleepless nights, of the shadow stretched over their lives, distorting everything. Push, the birthmaster said again, and more blood ran out. Push, 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 and Zakhidil's eyes were open, looking straight at her, and Dakian knew. She knew that the rhythm that racked Zakhidil, the pain that came in waves, it was all part of the same immutable law, the same thread that bound them more surely than the red one between lovers. What lay in the womb, under the skin, in their hearts, and in their minds, a kinship of gender that wouldn't ever be altered or extinguished. Her hand slid to her own flat, empty belly, pressed hard. She knew what that pain was. She could hold every layer of it in her mind as she'd held the ship's design. And she knew that Zakhidil, like her, had been made to bear it. Push. With a final, heart-wrenching scream, Zakhidil expelled the last of the mind from her womb. It slid to the floor, a red, glistening mass of flesh and electronics, muscles and metal implants, veins and pins and cables. It lay there, still and spent, and several heartbeats passed before Dakian realized it wouldn't ever move. Dakian put off visiting Zakhidil for days, still reeling from the shock of the birth. Every time she closed her eyes, she saw blood, the great mass sliding out of the womb, flopping on the floor like a dead fish, the lights of the birthing room glinting on metal wafers and gray matter, and everything dead, gone, as if it had never been. It had no name, of course, neither it nor the ship, both gone too soon to be graced with one. Push, push, and everything will be fine, push. Han tried her best, showing her poems with exquisite calligraphy, speaking of the future and of her new posting, fiercely making love to her as if nothing had ever happened, as if Dakian could just forget the enormity of the loss. But it wasn't enough, just as the ship hadn't been enough. In the end, remorse drove Dakian as surely as a barbed whip, and she boarded the shuttle to cross to the ship. Zakhidil was in the birthing room, sitting wedged against the wall, with a bowl of pungent tea in her veined hands. The two hollows framed her, their white-painted faces stark in the dim light, unforgiving. The birthmaster hovered nearby, but was persuaded to leave them both alone, though he made it clear Dakian was responsible for anything that happened to Zakhidil. Elder sister, Zakhidil smiled a little bitterly. It was a good fight. Yes, one Zakhidil could have won if she had been given better weapons. Don't look so sad, Zakhidil said. 
I failed, Dakian said simply. She knew Zakhidil's future was still assured, that she'd make her good marriage and bear children and be worshipped in her turn. But she also knew now that it wasn't the only reason Zakhidil had borne the mind. Zakhidil's lips twisted into what might have been a smile. Help me? What? Dakian looked at her, but Zakhidil was already pushing herself up, shaking, shivering, as carefully as she had done when pregnant. The birthmaster, he's fussing like an old woman, Zakhidil said, and for a moment her voice was as sharp and as cutting as a blade. Come, let's walk. She was smaller than Dakian had thought. Her shoulders barely came up to her own. She wedged herself awkwardly, leaning on Dakian for support, a weight that grew increasingly hard to bear as they walked through the ship. There was light and the sound of water and the familiar feel of chief flowing through the corridors in lazy circles, breathing life into everything. There were shadows barely seen in mirrors and the glint of other ships, too, the soft, curving patterns of the Golden Mountain, the carved calligraphy incised in the doors that had been the hallmark of the tiger who leapt over the stream, the slowly curving succession of ever-growing doors of Baoyu's red fan, bits and pieces salvaged from her design and put together into... into this, which unfolded its marvels all around her, from layouts to electronics to decoration, until her head spun and her eyes blurred, taking it all in. In the heart room, Dakian stood unmoving, while the five humors washed over them an endless cycle of destruction and renewal. The center was pristine, untouched, with a peculiar sadness hanging around it, like an empty crib. And yet, it's beautiful, Zakhidil said, her voice catching and quivering in her throat. Beautiful as a poem declaimed in drunken games, as a flower bud ringed by frost, beautiful and fragile as a newborn child struggling to breathe. And standing there at the center of things, with Zakhidil's frail body leaning against her, she thought of Han again, of shadows and darkness, and of life choices. It's beautiful. It would be gone in a few days, destroyed, recycled, forgotten and uncommemorated. But somehow, Dakian couldn't bring herself to voice the thought. Instead, she said softly into the silence, knowing it to be true of more than the ship. It was worth it. All of it, now and in the years to come. And she wouldn't look back or regret. <laughs> Again, don't forget, all these stories, there is copyright is the author's. Yes, please respect that. Do pop over to Aliette's site. Again, links on the show. The next and final one is Neil Williamson's Arrhythmia. The story first appeared in Mutation Press, Music for Another World. A big thank you to Mutation Press for allowing Starship Sova to play this story. It is narrated by Simon Hildebrandt. 
Simon, as you know, has made the Starship Sova's application on the Android system. A big round of applause for Simon for that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Arrhythmia by Neil Williamson. And the music floods in, sluicing away the dreams of silence. It's the percussive chink of dishes, the rustle and snap of Dad's newspaper, the excited kettle, the burbling wireless, and from the street outside the window, the muted, muttered march of the workforce heading out to the factory. Steve's eyes shutter open like aluminium blinds. Work, 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 the workers drone. Their insistent rhythm heaves Steve out from the clingy embrace of the nylon sheets. Work, work, work. He scratches the seam of his wife runs, scritch, 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 and hates that he did it in time with the song. Fuck, 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 he thinks. Fuck, fuck, fuck. He sings in the bathroom as he pisses, flushes, splashes his face with water. What's that, son? Growls his dad from the kitchen. Better get a shift on or you'll be late. Just humming a song, Steve mumbles as he dresses, wondering why his dad always says that. He's never late. He leaves half an hour earlier than his old dears for a start, and even if he didn't, no one's ever late for the factory. Mum beams at him through a cloud of ironing board steam. Sit down, son, she trills. It's on the plate. Two eggs, a pair of frazzled rashers and a chubby sausage arranged in a greasy face smiling up at him, the latest in the daily parade of fixed breakfast grins. He slices through one yolky eye, but any satisfaction it might have given him is nullified by the scrape of the unyielding crockery behind the facade. Steve chews his food, punctuating with grunts his dad's judgment on the contents of the paper, which amounts to little more than parroting the governor's pronouncements on everything from efficiency and productivity to popular culture. He eats slowly, not because he's savouring the taste, but because when he swallows everything, the music, the chatter, sort of equals out. He's almost able to pretend it's real silence. From within the music, there's a squeal of electric guitar feedback, and a cup clatters. A spill of milky tea spreads across the formica. Who does she think she is? Dad baritones. His face is redder than the tabloid masthead scrunched in his fist. Jumped up, little strumpet. He brandishes the paper. A grainy photograph of the mini-skirted singer from last night's Top of the Pops is the evident object of his outburst. Think she's better than the rest of us? Tardy little crumpet. Steve looks at the picture and remembers the spiky flaming hair, the PVC boots, the screaming, the attitude, and the mercifully brief snippet of something that bore scant resemblance to music. Arrhythmia. Jimmy Jensen had called her that when he'd introduced the band, before the TV was occluded by Dad's fat ass, and that music was abrupted by the click of the dial. Subversive. That's what they're calling it. Dad throws the newspaper down on the table. It's not subversive, it's obscene. Subversive? Mum looks perplexed. I don't follow. What does that word mean? It means... Dad's face goes even redder because he doesn't know, not really. It means... The old boy's voice wavers as he casts angrily around the kitchen for something to vent his anger on. Recognising trouble, Steve pushes his plate away, downs his tea, and stands. God save the Queen! Jerked out of his aimless rage, his father also stumbles to his feet, and his mother at her ironing board straightens herself smartly. God, God save, save the, queen. the Queen! They intone together. 
Mum's habitual, and God bless us, everyone. Follows Steve through the hall, where he throws his donkey jacket over his overalls and grabs his satchel. Have a lovely day at work, son. The front door clatters shut behind him. There are eight paving slabs between the door and the gate. The path exactly bisects the lawn and is bordered by roses. The plants are budding, but will not blossom until the first of May, signalling the start of summer. Their garden, and their neighbours, and all the gardens in the street, in the town. An orchestrated unfolding of colour. Steve hates summer, because that's when the music quickens its pace, making the endless routine of work, eat, play, sleep even harder to bear. Work, work, work. There are still workers filing past the gate, heading for the bus stop at the end of the street. As soon as Steve joins them, his feet fall into step. There is no escaping the compulsion to walk in time with the rest, to chant their morning mantra. Work, 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 they all sing. But in Steve's mind the words are, Fuck, fuck, fuck. A gargantuan multi-storied bus, red as a dragon in its factory livery, lumbers away as he approaches the stop, but that doesn't matter because there will be another soon enough. There's always another bus for the factory. A small crowd is gathering, and while they wait, a portly man decides it's time for a song. He climbs up onto a low wall, sticks his thumb under the bib of his overalls, and tenors. Every morning at the count of eight, my friends and I'll congregate at our old street corner where we stand and wait for the daily ride to the factory. It's an old music hall song, but it's eternally popular. People start to clap in time. A few hum along encouraging the man to continue with the second verse. Well, we all pile in for the two tad nine, and I take my place on the production line, and consider it my fortune fine to make my living at the factory. But there's something on my mind all day that I value more than my pennies pay. I... Some of the crowd join in, swelling the protracted note, and beneath their voices the music too gathers for the chorus. Work, work, work with all my might So I can munch, munch, munch with my fork and knife Then I'll dance, dance, dance to my heart's delight For I sleep, sleep, sleep a peaceful night Since the bus still hasn't made an appearance The man rolls on with the second verse And by the time the chorus comes around again Most of the crowd appears to be in the singing mood I'll work, work, work my natural life So I can munch, munch, munch on gravy pie Then I'll dance, dance, dance with my neighbor's wife And I'll sleep, sleep, sleep when it gets light it's a song of optimistic fantasy, whose many verses become progressively more ridiculous, developing from a hymn to duty and hard graft, to claims of the kind of hedonism that none of these people have encountered outside of saucy postcards and the Lenny Harris show on TV. One reason that Steve leaves for work earlier than his parents is that he cringes at the gusto with which his father sings this song, and wants to die when his mum joins in with the actions. I'll work, work, work my blasted life So I can munch, munch, munch till I split my sides Then I'll dance, dance, dance throughout the night Before I sleep, sleep, sleep with my neighbor's wife The song continues as the bus jostles them through the city's ordered streets Of identical red brick walls and postage stamp lawns Picking up more passengers, more singers of the song Until the enormous vehicle is full And it heads straight for the center of town For the towering stacks of the factory I'll work, work, work my neighbor's wife, and I'll munch, munch, munch on our gravy pie. The last chorus resounds around Steve as the bus rumbles through the imposing gates. 
Then I'll dance, dance, dance till I'm berserk. And I'll sleep, sleep, sleep when it's time to work. The workers spill out of the bus in good humour, traipsing up the steps and following the colour-coded corridors towards their assigned halls of duty. The music blends seamlessly with the pounding of the engines of production. Inside the factory, the two are inextricable. Steve is a blue, and today his route is a long meandering one that leads him down to a sub-level of the West Wing that he is unfamiliar with. He half hopes that today will bring an interesting, even comprehensible assignment, but he's been at the factory long enough to know how likely that is, so he contents himself with a fervent hope of agreeable companions for the day's toil. His thoughts circle around one particularly agreeable companion. Half a hope, half a fear. He knows exactly what his mother's response would be if he told her that he had been stationed next to Sandra McCready three times this month. Governor's got his matchmaking hat on, son, she'd say. Is she pretty? I bet she's pretty. In Steve's view, Sandra is in fact very pretty, but he doesn't see what business it is of anyone else's, especially not the governor's. People like Steve's mum believe that everything that happens in life from birth to death, how well you do at school, what grade you'll rise to in the factory, who you'll marry, and all points in between, are decided by the governor. Steve can't think of anything more horrible, and tells himself that such notions are for the weak-willed, the sheep who have never had an original thought in their lives. Today's manufactory is a long room. There are narrow windows high on one wall, their light striping the face of the huge clock that hangs from the ceiling, and falling on the spaghetti nest of rubberized conveyor belts below. When Steve finds his assigned place in the assembly line, he can't believe his luck, because there she is, already at her station, the trim, blonde figure of Sandra McCready. She's reading the day's instructions, hazel eyes flicking over the numbered pictures as she memorises the steps. Steve watches her for a few extra seconds as he hangs his jacket on the peg behind his stool, before climbing up beside her. Sandra, he notices, is smiling, a small private smile, a deep glossy red smile, the kind of smile you'd expect to see dazzling the boys at a Friday social. Although that lipstick, there's an off-pitched squeal that might be some misalignment in the factory's machinery, but which really sounds like someone badly abusing a guitar. The sound lingers, fades only reluctantly. Sandra glances up and catches him staring. Her smile gets wider. Then the hands of the clock tick onto the hour, and the whistles pierce the air. The pulse of the factory intensifies and the conveyor belts jerk into life. Steve has barely enough time to adjust the height of his stool, and glance at his own instructions before Sandra is placing the first of her finished pieces back onto the belt, and it's Steve's turn. The module is a lump of grey plastic, with moulded apertures, a few already plugged by components, looking like the surviving teeth in a centenarian's mouth. Sandra's contribution is a cream-coloured bakelite plug. Steve's is to twist into place two smoky glass bulbs that resemble the valves that glow orange in the back of the television set. His other neighbour will add a further contribution, and so on. What happens to the module once it's completed is none of their concern. It isn't difficult work. It requires speed and dexterity, but it is easy enough once you get into the rhythm. And in the factory, the music is at its most compelling. On the huge booming one of the great engines, the squeaking conveyor delivers a new module and Steve grabs a handful of components. On the two and three and four, he inserts twists, inserts twists his bulbs and then the belt rolls forward again, carrying the finished module on, and delivering a new one on the downbeat of the next bar. Around the manufactory hall, bodies move in time, reaching, tooling, assembling with the beat, breathing on the offbeat. 
At some point a bell will chime, the belts will still, and the workers will be permitted to drink water or visit the toilet. But absorbed as they are by their tasks, compelled as they are by the music, no one thinks about that until it happens. For now they work, and while they work, they sing. We don't know what we're making, we don't know what it's for, if it's destined for a hospital or end up in a war. We only know we're working from dawn till end of day, an honest day's effort for an honest day's pay. The song carries them through their shift. When their arms tire, it lends them strength. When their muscles ache, it soothes them. It moves the hands of the clock around in stealthy intervals, so that the morning passes almost without notice. The song thickens with harmonies, complicates with counterpoints. The hall resounds with impromptu calls and responses, but the basic song remains the same. The beat remains constant. The work gets done. Did you? Sandra's eyes are fixed on her work, but this contrapuntal aside is pitched to carry to Steve and no further. Did you see? Last night? On the TV? She risks a second of eye contact to make sure that Steve has heard her. When she sees that she has his attention, those red lips breathe. Arrhythmia. Steve almost misses a bulb. Sandra smiles. The break bell sounds, the conveyors grind to a standstill, and the work song dwindles out, leaving only the boom of the deep engines resounding in the air, vibrating through their feet. Sandra retrieves her handbag and her pretty beige Macintosh. A nod of the head, a promise in her eyes. Steve stumbles after her. He follows her beyond the line for the water cooler, past the queue for the toilets. There is door, and a corridor, and then another door, and then stairs, stairs, and more stairs. The astonishing silver-tipped heels of her ankle boots rim-shot on the risers. Below the hem of her work dress, the pale flash of skin in the outrageously ripped stocking sizzles like a symbol. The blue tail of a tattoo catches him off-beat, making him breathless by the time they reach the door at the top. We only have, Steve begins, but his voice comes out flat, atonal, in search of melody and scansion. Fifteen minutes. His words drift away over the flat roof, over the pipes and ducts and chimneys, up into the grey, silent air. Because here, by some quirk of architecture, some acoustic accident, there is silence. Or at least as close to it as Steve has ever experienced outside of his dreams. He can still feel the thud of the engines. It vibrates the tarmac beneath his feet, jumps through his fingers when he touches the brick chimney breast. But in his ears there is nothing. Hey. What? Sandra's red lips are a snarl. You're the one, she accuses, her words spilling fast and angry. You're the one. You're the one who's worried about time. Take this home. She holds out a package. It's square, wrapped in a white polythene bag, decorated with a poorly rendered skull and the words Anarchy Records. Take it home. Take it home and listen to it tonight. Her eyes are blazing with something entirely alien to Steve. And play it fucking loud, all right? Steve takes the bag. Then Sandra smiles, stretches up on the toes of her wicked little boots, and kisses him. The kiss is short and brutal, and Sandra's lipstick is smeared when it's over. Without another word, she re-enters the factory and disappears down the stairs. Part of Steve already knows what's in the bag, and part of him doesn't want to confirm his suspicion. He just wants to stand here in the silence a little longer. But there, faintly, is the warning bell that signals the imminent resumption of the shift. Steve sighs. He flaps open the bag, acknowledges the mini-skirted harridan, the bilious spatter of her name. He closes the bag quickly, slips it inside his coat, and reluctantly gets back to the beat.
Are you sure, son, that you don't want to come? Mum fastens the top button of her coat, pats her hair into place. It's the second Tuesday of the month, and that means drinks with the Hendersons. Steve stares at his pork chop and colourless diced vegetables, shakes his head. Dad enters from the hall. Come on, lad, it'll be fun. He winks and pats Mum's bottom, yoking the word fun with lurid potential. You can talk to... Mum hefts a gift-wrapped box of matchmakers. You can talk to... Dad grabs the bottle of plonk. Veronica... Jennifer. Steve's parents share a look of consternation. Of the Henderson's two daughters, Jennifer is a year older than Steve and timid as a rabbit, while Veronica is a year younger and a precocious tease. No thanks. Steve snaps his reply, forestalling his parents from saying any more. When the front door snicks shut, Steve breathes out, one long, slow stream of air. He keeps on blowing out until he is empty, until his lungs ache, but he can still feel his heart. The music, reduced to its lowest volume, beat, beat, beat. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Steve clears his dinner into the bin, rinses off the plate and cutlery, puts the things away. Then he goes into the living room and lifts the lid on the record player. To one side of the machine are Dad's records. Cheesy covers depict men in dinner suits and bow ties, or women in lame gowns and towering hair. Bert Goodman, Sylvia Hammond, and Dad's favourite, Charlie Montgomery. On the other side of the turntable, his mother's much smaller collection of heartthrob chart toppers, all hair oil, leather jackets with the collars turned up, and dangerous winks. To watch his parents listen to them, you'd think this music was capable of transporting you, but how can it? There are four measured beats to every one of those bars. No matter how chirpy and bright, how croony and swoony, four beats. Work, eat, play, sleep. Transportation? You'd be as well putting your ear to the factory wall. Steve slips Sandra's record from the polythene, holds the garish cardboard square by the corners, by his fingertips. He stares at the sleeve, drinks in the clashing colours, the jagged lettering, the snarling girl frozen in the act of smashing her fist through a pane of glass, teeth bared and red lips parted in a yell. He flips it over, devours the other side too. The track listings. A. Smash your way out. B. Tear it up. The writing credits, the copyright notice, the logo, and the business address of the record company. Behind the text, a close-up photo of a blue bottle sandwiched between two plates of glass. Steve's fingers are shaking as he slides the vinyl out of the sleeve. He tilts it, and the light swims across its glossy grooves. He rotates the knurled switch with a satisfying clunk. The turntable begins to move, and the speaker issues that expectant noise that is part hum and part hiss. Steve turns the volume knob from two to three. The expectation arises. He feels sick, but he doesn't know why. It's just a record. It can't possibly give him what he dreams of. This will be anything but silence. He drops the record onto the machine. It shrugs reluctantly, rebelliously down the spindle. He watches it for one, five, ten revolutions before plucking up the courage to place the stylus onto the leader. He realises he is holding his breath. There's a percussive chunk, followed by a wire-thin whistle of feedback that sounds taut like a restraint. Then, off microphone, one, two, three, four, and then a crazed, enraged musical beast is released. Growls of guitar, slashing steel claws of cymbals, raging inchoate screams, barely comprehensible. Kick him down, beat him up, to a pulp, scream and shout, smash it, smash it, smash it, smash it, smash your way out, 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 out. Steve recognises the hook, 
On top of the pops, that two seconds had been two seconds too long, but now he can't get enough. Smash it, smash it, smash it. The song goes on forever. The song lasts two minutes and nine seconds precisely. It finishes with a final foundering thrash, and that is followed by silence. Steve starts the record again, nudges the volume up one more notch. Sometime later he is lying on the floor and shouting, Smash it, smash it, smash it, out, out, out. He's lost track of the number of times he has played the song. The record player's volume is at ten now, and even though the ducks are jouncing against the wallpaper and the crystal ornaments jumping on the mantelpiece, it still isn't loud enough. Then the music cuts in with a soap opera melodrama that easily drowns the record out. The room fills with a sickening swell of impending familial discord, and framed in the doorway are his parents' faces, Dad's red, Mum's ashen. Your old man? He actually broke it, man? Snapped the plastic? Like elastic? On the factory roof the next day, Sandra's face is impossible to read. She's done something with her hair. It looks weirdly asymmetrical at the front, ragged at the back. I'm so sorry, Steve sings low and earnest, and is perplexed by the huge grin he receives. That's so, so fucking cool. Your rents are cardboard cutout cruel. What a pair of wa-a-ankers. Steve thinks that's going a bit far, but he's not about to admit that right now, so he imitates her melody. Wa-a-a-ankers. Too right. She looks up at him through her lopsided fringe. You know, you're all right. What are you doing Friday night? Uh, nothing. Which is true. If Steve had friends that he regularly went out with, or had ever shown any interest in attending the weekend socials at the factory, no doubt his parents would have added restrictions on his movement to the punishment that banned his use of the television and the record player for the rest of the month. But since all Steve ever did was go to work, then come home, it had clearly never occurred to them. For the rest of the week, Steve does what is expected of him. He goes to work at eight, he eats at six, he puts his light out and sleeps at eleven. His mother tries to interest him in conciliatory after-dinner board games, but the living room is radiant with Dad's constant glare, so he opts to retire early with a book whose pages he turns but doesn't remember. He doesn't see Sandra again that week, but that doesn't matter. She's written the details down for him on a scrap of paper that is pressed between the pages of his book. On Friday, it's a simple matter of repeating the pattern of the previous evenings, then lying awake until the rest of the house is retired before stealing downstairs and slipping out. The Maker's Mark is located at the low-rent end of the parade. It's a cold night, needles of rain prickling Steve's face and a ragged wind plucking at the tails of his workshirt. He's familiar with the parade from helping Mum with the Saturday shopping, but that's during the day. These nighttime shuttered frontages are alien to him, like turned cheeks, the warmly lit windows above, blind eyes. The segs of his work boots beat their ingrained, infuriating four on the pavement. Steve forces himself to break the rhythm, interspersing lopes and shuffles into his gait. Nothing calamitous happens, but the novelty quickly wears off. It's simply easier to go with the music. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Steve's breath mists the air, becoming a song he hadn't known was there. I feel... His melody is low, threaded with minor intervals. Outside of everything, outside of living and dying, and laughing and crying... And everything real. Near the grocers there are some broken food crates. Steve scoops up a piece of wood, drags it along the wall as he continues to sing. 
I feel unreal, brittle and paper thin, fragile as butterfly wings, the most delicate things. Touch me. As Steve rounds a corner, he belts the stave satisfyingly against a lamppost. And I'll shatter. The upper third of the wood snaps and dangles by jagged splinters. He swings it around in circles as he advances down a side street. I feel my own rhythm, but I'm ruled by the beat. I'm light as a feather, yet chained by my feet. Ahead, he sees a pub. It must be the one he's looking for, because there's nothing else out here. I know where I'm going, from the first step to the last, he murmurs. But the bus that I'm riding is going too fast. He comes to a halt, throws the broken stick away. He wishes he hadn't come, wants to go home. He wants to be anywhere but home. I just want to make it stop. I just want to breathe. Jam the hands upon the clock. Hide between the beats. He hasn't a clue where he wants to be. I just want to be me, Steve whispers, and finds that he is moving again, closing step by step on the beery lights, the well of muted noise. I just want to be me, me, me. Steve breaks off when he realises that there is someone leaning against the wall beneath the swinging pub sign. The corpulent man is wrapped in a woolen coat. He takes a puff of a chubby cigar and blows out exotic smoke. If he heard Steve's song, he gives no indication. But when Steve falters at the door, he glances at last his way. And if you can't stop moving... The melody apes Steve's down to the last note, but the clear tenor voice, unmistakable from the television, is what is amazing. If there's no such thing as silence, why not indulge in a little noise and violence? You're the... Steve begins, but the governor raises a fat finger to his lips. Then with a tap of glowing ash, he straightens up and saunters off down the parade, apparently oblivious to the muffled blare that has been issuing from the building all this time. There is perhaps a measure less of anticipation in Steve's heart as he eases open the pub door and walks into the buffeting cacophony, but it is quickly forgotten when he finds Sandra's hand and manages to lose himself completely in the all-consuming noise that, in the end is almost as good as silence. It is only many years later, when he and Sandra are married, that he will look back and feel cheated. Sandra and the others will remember a genuine moment of rebellion, even if the only thing to get torn up and smashed out are the walls of the old factory making way for a shinier, sleeker and more productive replacement, even if people still spend their lives doing the same meaningless, incomprehensible jobs. Even if the changes to come that will feel so fundamental at the time are acknowledged in the end as merely superficial, they will remember arrhythmia and claim a small part in what they'll call a revolution. A revolution that began with one, two, three, four. But Steve won't have that. Instead, he'll remember the governor's words, the way they lingered in the air like the cigar smoke, staining everything to come the way they fell in perfect time with both the music and the pub's muffled chaos, equally bound by those four simple, inescapable beats. One, two, three, four. Work, eat, 
play, sleep. Live, marry, fuck, die. It is only years later that he will acknowledge the truth that it seems he has always known. Sometimes the music might change its tune, but it will never end. There you go. Again, copyright is Neil's. Link on to Neil's site and big thank you to Simon. So that is the three stories Starship Sova has been allowed to play for this British Science Fiction Awards. I hope you do like it and don't forget, the winners will be announced at EasterCon this year. The ballots will close at midday on Saturday, April the 23rd and the winners will be announced at the ceremony hosted that evening at the convention. So there you go. I hope you've enjoyed these stories and again we'll maybe try and do this sometime in the future as well. Don't forget, just before we end, Starship Sovas, there's only a couple of weeks, if that, to go for the Write As Workshop. If you want to get on with the, the Write As Workshop, we have Michael Swanick, James Patrick Kelly, David Mercurio, Sheila Williams and Gregory Frost all taking part in this writer's workshop. I've seen now how they're going to do their little segment and it's looking really special. So do pop over to Starship Sova, look for the workshops tab, top of the page and join up. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Thank <laughs> you.